Parnaso. This morning we raise the issue experientially of agency, of agency. Who's doing what? Who's in this particular case? Who's meditating? Who's the agent? Who's the doer? And we're hardly coming into this meditation as a tabla rasa, like not, not having a clue. Uh, there are a lot of answers to that question, bombarding us from all sides. And our approach will be a challenge to all of them. So who's the agent? Who's doing what here? The most helpful starting point here, to my mind, is the statement by William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. Because when we ask, who is the agent? We're really asking, who am I? Because I am an agent, I do two things. I observe, I'm aware, and I do. That pretty much sums me up, I think. I'm aware, that is, experiencing all kinds of things, and I do things. And then I'm aware of more things, and I do more things. That's me. But then what's the referent? What's the referent of this word, me? Or if we think the mind is doing it, what's the referent of the word mind? Of course, there are a lot of ideas about the, the agency issue. And for the moment, what we attend to is reality. So imagine you've just spent the last 25 years of your life utterly devoting yourself to observing animals, animal behavior, animals in their environment, animals changing over time in response to the environment. And then you get around to looking at human beings. How will you view human beings as animals? That's what Darwin did. Brilliant, brilliant biologist, brilliant science, wonderful science. But then it turns into a worldview where now we understand ourselves as, it's always the nothing but. The nothing but phrase, look out for that one. Human beings are nothing but animals. Do we have animal qualities? You betcha. But the nothing but is the one that's a big warning flag for me. Nothing but. And that is everything about us, our agency, everything that we do, everything we experience and feel can all be understood now in terms of natural selection and genetic mutation, which means every aspect of our minds and our behavior must have been good for us. Because otherwise, why would, we, why would they still be there? These are just piling article of faith on top of article of faith, and I think profoundly misleading. As if, oh, I mean, it, I could go on and on. But so my own opinion is that Darwinian evolution is spectacular science and just a total bomb out as a religion and as an all-encompassing worldview. By the time we get to the 20th century, we have behavioral psychologists observing the behavior of animals like rats and pigeons. And then they get around to studying human beings. And what do we look like? Human beings are simply a, ne a network, an algorithm of behavioral dispositions. And then it's put us in one environment, we behave this way. In other words, if, who are we really? Just behavioral dispositions responding to environment. If that thing like, seems like a very antiquated notion, because behavior has really had its heyday, passed a long time ago, just recently, a very, very prominent psychologist, when viewing the really awful behavior of, America, uh, of American soldiers at Abu Ghraib, torturing their subjects, he looked at this, and then he gave his solution. Don't put them into that environment. That was the solution. He didn't say maybe they could have some empathy training. 
No, just don't put them in the environment. In other words, put a human being in the environment, that's what human beings do. Why? Because we're just a little network of behavioral dispositions. And that's all we are. So behavioral psychology is another brilliant branch of psychology, but as a religion, as a worldview, oh, what a catastrophe. Then we have people studying computers, artificial intelligence, robotics. Cognitive psychologists get into it with all of their computational models of the mind and brain. And lo and behold, that's what we are. We are computers. We, we are brains. The brains are computers. We are computers. And if you want to change the human, human existence, human behavior, and so forth, just change the algorithms. But the most dominant one nowadays, because it's getting a massive infusion of money, is cognitive neuroscience. And I just had a brief debate with one of the world experts uh, on, in, this, in this area, a professor, I think I'll leave it anonymous, but a world expert, major, major institution. And uh, he challenged me when I, when I critiqued another person's theory that consciousness is nothing more than, it's always that phrase, nothing more than integrated information. And so I critiqued this, and then I also critiqued the same neuroscientist saying that neurons talk to each other. And I said, you know, you're just, you're anthropomorphizing neurons. This is animism all over again. I mean, we used to do this with trees and mountains, and now you're doing it with neurons. This is just primitive, superstitious talk. And another neuroscientist leapt to his defense and said, oh, no, this is poetic talk. Your criticism is silly. He didn't really mean it literally. Well, if you didn't mean it literally, what did you mean? That is, if are neurons conscious or not? Do they do things? And the answer is we're getting ubiquitously in the press. The media are just jumping onto the bandwagon here with no skepticism whatsoever that everything you thought you were doing, your brain is doing. You thought you were feeling? No, it's not, your, your, it's not you feeling anything. It's your hippocampus. It's your amygdala. You thought you were thinking? No, it's the prefrontal cortex. You thought you were seeing? No, no, it's visual cortex. You thought you were conscious? No, that's 40 hertz bandwidth of electromagnetic field generated by your brain. That one's thrown out, but now it's just coming up with one more thing after another that everything that we thought we did, now the brain is doing, and we're along for the ride, except for we're not along for the ride because we don't exist. That all that's really there is brain function. And so if you think you have any perspective, you don't have a perspective because you don't exist. So this is one of the false facsimiles, false facsimile of loving kindness, and self-centered attachment, and so forth. The conclusion that brain scientists draw that the self doesn't exist because all there really is is brain function is a false facsimile of the profound liberating insight from Buddhism. It's a false facsimile because it just reduces us to an organ. But there's nobody there. It's just an organ responding to chemical stimuli, electrochemical stimuli. So in each of these cases, whether it's evolutionary biologists, behavioral psychologists, cognitive psychologists, artificial intelligence people, or cognitive neuroscientists, every time they reduce us to what they are attending to, they disempower us. And us doesn't mean Buddhists, it means the human population. It disempowers us. Because now if you want to know who you are, you have to read a neuroscience textbook, you have to read about artificial intelligence, you have to be read about, oh gosh, I, I, what, what's inter integrated information? That's who I really am. And so every time we want to know, we have to go outside ourselves and ask, st standing at the altar of whatever branch of science it is, tell me who I really am, because of course I don't even exist, so I don't have a clue.
that's not Buddhist notion of non-self. So there's something creepily similar to what's taking place right now with all of these fields, evolutionary biology, behavioral psychology, cognitive science, cognitive psychology, artificial intelligence, cognitive neuroscience, and that is they are all claiming to know who we really are. They are disempowering and basically making illegitimate our own perspective, devaluing down to nothing our own perspective. As one very prominent cognitive psychologist said, all subjective experience is illusory. Except, of course, the experience of a cognitive psychologist. Because <laughs> you know, they're not going to call their stuff illusory, otherwise why would they write any papers? You know, Hey, everybody, I've got some garbage to share with you. It's purely illusion, but let's get it published in Science and Nature and it'll add to my CV. And so I think there's something creepily si uh, similar here, because I was just checking up on the Internet exactly when this happened, the selling of indulgences in the early 16th century. And Martin Luther rising up and saying, this is a lot of crap. And that is, you priests, and he was a priest, you're not even letting the public read the Bible. You won't, you know, it's in Latin and Greek, only the professionals get to read the Bible. And so you've completely disempowered us there. And the only way to get to God is by way of you, the apostolic tradition, the church, the dogma, and so forth. You've radically disempowered the illusion and enough is enough. And so Protestant Reformation, it was one very mixed bag, that's for sure. But that revolt against a clergy that disempowered the individual, that disempowered first-person experience, demanded you have a mediator. Then it was the priest, now it's the community of scientists and the dogma of scientific materialism, radically disempowering the individual, devaluing our own individual experience, and tremendously adding to their power and wealth and prestige. I think sucks. So that's an opinion. <laughs> Time for a Protestant Reformation, I think, against a scientific establishment that's trying to take good science and turn it into bad religion. Because I love science. I love every branch of science I just mentioned. But it's religion that sucks. That's my sense. And in, ter in terms of marginalizing or the nothing more than clause, that's where it totally sucks. So let's come back to immediate experience. Nobody has direct access to your mind like you do. None of them do. The biologists, cognitive psychologists, neuroscientists, nobody has access to consciousness, of your consciousness like you do. So you, 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 you've all been designated professionals. <laughs> Not that I can bless anybody at all. But there at all, it's already there. We already have privileged access. I made this comment to one of my professors at Stanford that we had privilege, that you know, each, each of us has privileged access to our emotions. He said, no, you don't. That's when I, shortly after that, I dumped him as my, my, as my mentor. I said, if you don't think I, if you deny that I have privileged access to my thoughts and emotions, then I'm just now de denying you privileged access to my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I won't, I don't have to put up with this. So, contemplatives of the world unite. <laughs> You have only your chains to lose. Let's go back to meditation.
now with a sense of ease, relaxation, and comfort. Release your awareness into the body, into this non-conceptual space. It doesn't talk. It simply expresses. Sensations arising within the field of the body. Let your awareness permeate this field and set your body at ease with a quality of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. And surrender all control over your respiration, utterly releasing with every out-breath, and with a sense of total release, see if you can also release the energy behind, the restless, restlessness and turbulence behind this inner obsessive flow of thinking, that it's not suppressed, it's released with every out-breath. For a little while, release this conceptual mind into the quiet of simple witnessing, non-reactive awareness, settling your awareness in a quality of ease, in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations, especially of the breath, throughout this field of the body. Release your mind into awareness.
let your eyes be at least partially open and gently cast your gaze downwards. But without taking anything as an object, just resting and being present. Physically be still like a mountain. Withdraw your interest, withdraw your attention from all the appearances to awareness, all the appearances illuminated by awareness. Withdraw your awareness from all objects that are known by awareness and invert your attention right in upon that experience of being aware, brightly, awake, knowing. What is this immediate experience? What is the nature of this knowing that would still be there even if all of your senses shut down and your mind went completely quiet? What is the nature of that bare knowing? Now, to the best of your ability, leaving aside all that you've learned, acquired knowledge from outside sources. Simply examine closely. 
Do you have a sense of being someone who is observing? A real subject? In here? Sharply focus your attention, concentrate, and invert your awareness upon your lived sense, your experienced sense of being the observer. If there is indeed such a sense, examine closely and then utterly release your awareness into space in all directions, without an object. Invert and release, gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness throughout this oscillation. you invert your awareness in upon that which is observing, what do you perceive? There's no right answer here. It is simply, what do you perceive? An image? A sense of presence? Do you perceive anything more or less as you invert your awareness in upon the observer as opposed to when you release it into space?
Now assuming that you are indeed inverting and releasing your awareness, that you've chosen to do so, and that you are doing so deliberately. <coughs> now as you invert your awareness, invert it in upon that which is doing the meditation, that is controlling, directing your attention. This is not an analytical exercise, it is an exercise in precise observation. Your lived, experienced sense of being an agent Some, if some appearance does arise of yourself, a self-image, observe what is it that is observing that image. If you think there is some entity in here called the mind, which is releasing and inverting your attention, if you think you have a mind that is agent, that's doing things, 
examine precisely what is the referent of the word. You use it commonly. What does it refer to? Does it have location, shape, or size? If the mind is the agent, is it observable or invisible? The more deeply you invert your awareness in upon that which is aware, the more fully release and relax into space with no object. Release the oscillation and let your awareness come to rest, utterly at rest, in its own place without inversion or release, resting in its own place in the center, simply knowing itself.
Russell. I mentioned that there are, in very broad strokes or in great generalities, there are two approaches to the practice of shamatha. One of these can be quite accurately called a developmental approach, and that is it's starting from really not having shamatha or an object of shamatha at all, and then developing the object and developing the stability and vividness of attention. But it's really like having just a flat body of land, and, and there's no building there. And like pretty much what this was a year and a half ago, boy, that's a lot of flat land and scrub, and then developing a whole mind center out of it. And then that's what we see here. But it really wasn't there. He didn't, he didn't take a, a broom and sweep away the dirt and find the mind center was wait, waiting, you know, all created. That would have been very cool. But that's not what happened. <coughs> so a classic method that really embodies or epitomizes that approach is the um, practice of shamatha by focusing on a visualized Buddha image. If you're not visualizing, it's just not there, right? It just, nope, that's just nothing. And then you develop it, and it's very sketchy, and then, and then the mind is not stable, and the mind is not clear, and so out of a lack of clarity and a lack, and a lack of stability subjectively, and a lack of an object objectively, then you cultivate the whole thing, until, and, and it works. I mean, that developmental project was not just some right idea. Generations and generations of yogis, especially in Tibet, have used that very, very effectively. So I'm not setting up one as better than the other. That's a developmental approach, though. I think it's quintessentially developmental. This approach, the awareness of awareness, which Tsongkhapa also taught, and that, that's a method that Tsongkhapa didn't invent, the one of visualizing a Buddha image, goes way back to India, uh, Tsongkhapa described it with great eloquence and, and precision. But Tsongkhapa, who so highlighted that one, also mentioned, almost like a yin and yang symbol, big emphasis on the developmental. And then with about one phrase, he said, and then there's another method of just resting in the awareness of the sheer luminosity and cognizance of awareness. And then you can achieve shamatha that way. So we have about 100 pages on the development of, of the you know, Buddha image. And then, oh, by the way, you can do that way too. And that takes one line. Uh, that's discovery. That's discovery. And so when you really ascertain the nature of your own awareness, experientially, obviously, not just come up with some cool idea, then you'll find that your awareness is by nature still. Awareness seems to be in motion. I would suggest that may be an illusion, but certainly seems to be. I'm, I'm looking over there, there's Julie, and oh, there's Yonam, and Attention going, oh, there's Jessica, there's Basang. So my attention going all over the place, right? Awareness roving, roving, roving about. Why, does, why do we have that sense of the, of the mind, awareness, moving all over the place? And excitation. Or oh, the word that we translate as toa, that, that is in Tibetan, it's toa in English, often translated as, well, agitation. It doesn't mean that really. Toa means dispersing, going out like a flock of pigeons that you've just released. Out, out it goes. So there's one word, gupa, which means excitation, and that's the restlessness, the agitation of the mind driven by desire. Okay, wanting this, craving for that. But more broadly, there's toa, and toa is just the dispersion. You lost it, you just lost your mind, because your mind, like a pigeon, just flew off. You know? So we have the sense of the mind being in motion, awareness going hither and yon. And what enables the mind to move? Why does awareness have the appearance of moving? Because of grasping. A thought arises, we, we, we hitchhike. 
or it just simply kidnaps us, throws us in the trunk and drives off. That is, if it's voluntary, we hitchhike. If it's not voluntary, it's kidnapping. And so the awareness moves around because of grasping, right? Relinquish all grasping, and what's left over is awareness that is by nature still. On occasion, our minds seem to be very, very dull. Quite a number of you said, oh, when I go to supine position, I get very dull, or I'm sleepy, I take, need to take a nap, and so forth. Fair enough, good, good description. Why is it that sometimes awareness, which by nature is luminous, sel shin rikpa, luminous and cognizant, that's a very defining characteristic of consciousness. If it's by nature luminous, then how can it seem to be dull? Well, in the same way that a lamp can be dull. You can have a thousand watt bulb, but if you wrap it in black velvet, it will seem to be a very dull light. And why? Because it's cloaked. There's a cognitive fusion with dullness. And that is, we're not vividly, luminously aware. I'd love to see, have, have one of you say this when you come for your me weekly meeting. I ex this past week, I experienced dullness, and I was radiantly, vividly aware of the mind being dull. <laughs> That'd be cool. It actually is possible that you're aware of the dullness, but you're not cognitively fused with it, which is to say you're not grasping onto and identifying with it. So either way, whether it's the mind in motion through toa, through dispersion, into movement, or whether it's the mind becoming dull, either case, it's because of grasping. Grasping onto that which is moving about, thoughts and so forth, grasping onto the dullness, the lethargy, the sleepiness and so forth, grasping onto. So this raises the question, what can we stop doing to discover shamatha? Well, that's pretty obvious. Stop grasping. Stop latching onto, identifying with, grasping onto thoughts. When dullness arises, just be vividly aware of it. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know? Hoo-hoo! Dullness is coming in. Haven't seen you for a while. Look a bit gloomy. So glad I'm not you. <laughs> so don't grasp onto either the dullness or onto the excitation and what's left over you discover the innate stillness and the innate luminosity of your own awareness and those are the characteristics of achieving shamatha stability and vividness stabilize there and you've just discovered you've just discovered shamatha so this method is mostly one of not doing and it's attending to being aware of what was already there waiting to be uncloaked so it sounds a lot easier, doesn't it? Let's see if it is. See you a bit later.